Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who has had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide you with my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. This week, I'm looking at the October 1st, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, where I'll have a couple of ideas this week. But before I get to that, some important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only, and that's not a guarantee. Uh, secondly, I may have many important conflicts of interest, including... Uh, the fact that I may be uh, recommending the opposite of what's actually in your best interest. Um, third, I may be completely uninformed. I'm just paging through Value Line after work, or actually in this case it's late uh, Saturday night. And finally, I could be uh, heavily drinking. Excuse me a minute. Uh, <clears throat> And in fact, I am. And so, um, what I'm going to do tonight is I have three terrific ideas out of this week's Value Line Investment Survey. I went through every name, and, um, you know, there were several interesting uh, sectors this week. I have a couple of good packaging ideas, I think, uh, look pretty good, and one in, uh, in betting. Um, Pulp, etc. Um, now, normally, I do a little bit of a rant at the beginning of the show, or I've been doing that in 2010. You know, I don't know. I had someone write in recently and say maybe they didn't like the rants. I don't know. But I've got a section called It Would Help My Portfolio If, and that is usually a rant. And what's happened is it's turned into sort of a rant against uh, excessive government. And... Um, you know, a sense that if capitalists could just have some stable rules of the road, we could get the machinery of capitalism sort of oiled and moving along. And uh, instead of people investing at 1% treasuries, uh, they are 2% or whatever the crazy rate is now, they would be investing at some higher return as uh, entrepreneurs and capitalists would uh, find projects that were worthy of uh, the risk and uh, that would allow the economy to grow. But unfortunately, um, the government uh, has gotten into a mode here, and I've talked about this at length on the show over and over, where the, we just don't know the rules of the road. What are tax rates? What are labor costs? Uh, what industries are? Uh, am I going to be competing with the federal government next? Um, etc., etc., etc. In fact, I have to apologize. I've been, you know, a, a little tardy with the show. I took another month off, but um, for longtime listeners, you, you know, hopefully you appreciate, you know, th this was an, uh, an odd year in that there was some moving going on. We finally completed that a month ago. Um, there was a bunch of legal stuff going on. I think I had a show where I just complained about lawyers. So that's been going on. And um, 
so anyway, I've been uh, a little late with the show, but it, uh, September was a you know, decent month, and uh, and so uh, uh, you know, hopefully you were enjoying the fruits of a good portfolio. Um, but I, what I'm going to do this week, and I started to get off on a tangent there, is rather than do this rant that I've been doing, um, I, I have a guest ranter this week, and. Um, you know, uh, the rants I've been doing, these sort of um, rants against the notion of government spending as a percentage of GDP getting too high and stifling the uh, creative uh, juices of, you know, entrepreneurs and intelligent or lucky Americans and, uh, you know, investors, um, that, um, you know, the, the government has been, has been harming uh, the growth rate. Evidently, one of the listeners, uh, a Mr. Stephen Keel, uh, who yeah, I checked out his website. You know, he started a uh, a, f- a fund that is, uh, you know, what is it called here? I've got. I think I wrote it down somewhere. So uh, let's see the free market, uh, the Hayek Fund, based on free market principles. So. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting, and, you know, as I say, I haven't been really keeping up with the show, so I thought, you know, Stephen seems pretty upset about this encroachment of uh, the government into GDP, and so uh, he's going to be the guest rant, and, you know, I posed a question to him about uh, really what he thought the most harmful uh, legislation has been coming out of the United States government, and um, and so we're going to get to that. Um, but normally I do that first, but, uh, you know, Stephen, and I apologize, he's, he's just on hold right now, but um, I'm going to just do some a couple ideas real quick, because it's late, and um, I'm coming down with a little something. I, again, apologize, it's been very difficult to find time to do the show. But hopefully, um, you know, there's about five years of shows out there. I just got a really touching uh, email about a gentleman who, I guess, had to do a cross-country drive and listen to 70 hours of the show. So, my God, I I haven't even done that. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of back shows. If you pull our XML code into, uh, you know, your Internet uh, Explorer browser, you can sort by ticker, and I also keep a long list of best ideas on the site. There's a button, Val's Best Ideas, and there's five years of best stock ideas. There's a hundred stocks, and I review that, and I update it occasionally, and, you know, there's a lot of good ideas in there as well. So, um, you know, I, I heard the other day that uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the group that's empowered to decide when the uh, recoveries and recessions start and end, etc. They decreed that the re- recession actually ended last year in July, and they have announced that it's ended now. Um, and the timing seems a little odd because you know they are a year late, but uh, and you know you can they have a website and they tell you the dates that they you know decide these things and all, but. Um, 
you know, the, they it's a little political, I think, in announcing it right now before the election a month away. Whereas in 92, in that election, um, the election went forward and people believed we were in a recession. Whereas I think shortly after that election, the NBER announced that, in fact, the recovery had begun in 91. And, you know, the, the, some of these things can affect outcomes of elections. <clears throat> I don't know if it will in this case. But the point I would make is that usually when these announcements come out, it's in a period where there is the first glimmer that you're coming out of it, and the NBER sort of gloms onto that, uh, has enough history to know that, um, you know, there's a high probability that uh, these particular metrics, when they line up a certain way, I mean, they have elaborate models, and in a prior life as a as a somewhat quant on occasion, you know, I've done some of this work, and it, you, you know, it, it's just a probability. But in order for them to go out with this news that the recession is over, they've got a pretty good probability that it is. And yet we're still in a time where the general public and the investing public is in a period of uncertainty. So, you know, the NBER sort of has to lead the way. They don't like, you know, calling the end of a recession when everyone on the planet already knows that the recession's over. So as leaders in this area, they're going to be on the front wave of this. So the point being that valuations uh, still reflect a period of uncertainty. And yet, you know, the political winds are pretty clear. We're going to get a rollback of some of these excessive taxes and such. Government spending as a percentage of GDP versus what you might have thought six months ago will be going down. And in part, my view, that may be part of why We've had a little bit of a rally here in September, and um, and September ended up being a pretty important month. We went from going into uh, September at the end of August, uh, year-to-date returns for most major indices were negative, and September was a terrific month for most indices. Um, and I think most, again, are, are showing positive, you know, 4, 5, 6, 7% a year year to date returns right now so investors are in a little better mood um so anyway uh let me get right to a couple of stocks and i'm going to save mr uh, steve keel's rant uh, for the end of the show first up this week is uh uh one stock that you know caught my eye uh i'm a little you know i think it's on the sort of the high end of the of, of you know, the the risk uh, pendulum here, but it's CULP uh, ticker CFI, page eleven forty three. I'm bringing that back here a little bit. Uh, what I'm caught by is here is again valuation is going to be the first thing that catches my eye. CULP is at eight times earnings, um, which is you know just slightly more than half the market PE. It's four times EBITDA, meaning the enterprise value, the value of the stock, plus the debt, plus the cash. I have $110 million. It's a teeny little company, and they do about $30 million in EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's four times. The inverse, 25%, to me, that represents the cash return, the return I would earn if I bought this thing for $110 million, and I'd get $30 million in cash, that's a 25% return to me, uh, and again, that compares to if I went to the bank and bought treasury bonds, 
I'd earn, I think, what, 2.5% or something. It's just crazy that these companies, um, you know, are returning these high earnings yields. And it's unprecedented in my career to have earnings yields so much higher than bond rates, bond yields. So uh, that, that catches my eye. Um, what they do is they are a uh, leading manufacturer and marketer of fabrics for furniture and bedding. And while, you know, that sounds pretty dull, and I can tell you that the retailers of these product lines have done terribly the last few years, in part because you had, you know, five or six firms all vying to earn 20% of the market, and if you do the math on that, uh, that's 120%. So price wars, low returns on capital was the name of the game. These guys, uh, evidently, you know, they're they're sort of in a little niche where they've been, uh, my guess is, buying the competition, slowly gaining share, getting economies of scale, and they make the, um, you know, some of the uh, mattress fabric and the, uh, what do they call it, the um, interior of the mattress. The uh, There's a word for that. It's probably here somewhere. Ticking. There you go. The ticking. So, um, you know, they're earning uh, upper teens returns on capital. Uh, they've had a slowly rising operating margin from the mid single digits up toward the low, uh, low teens. And that suggests to me, uh, particularly when sales are the same level, uh, that either they're getting price increases because the competition is going away or they're getting economies of scale in some fashion, cost reduction. And in fact, when you read in here, what's happening is uh, they've moved a lot of capacity for manufacturing furniture upholstery to China, and it's a big growth area for them. And the company is so small that I think that, you know, the market just doesn't completely appreciate that, um, you know, this is apt to be an annuity as they take advantage of the lower cost of manufacturing in China, but yet use their, um, you know, their marketing capabilities and servicing capabilities in North America to take um, a, a their their fair share of the of the revenue, and in fact get a slowly rising return on invested capital as the you know heavy lifting on that is occurring somewhere else. So it looks like it could be a little bit of a sustainable trend as um, they move more of their capacity uh, into China. And in fact, when we saw this, I think, you know, maybe 15 years ago in the apparel industry, when all the apparel guys started moving their manufacturing over to China, and, you know, of course what happened was costs went way down. Some people thought that would be competed away, but instead what happened was um, pricing did not rise a lot, over the you know next ten years or so, and but, but you know the prices didn't come down, and they stayed more in line with the perceived value to the customer and the manufacturers or you know the marketing companies, the retailers ended up enjoying the benefits of that um, margin improvement. So my guess is there's a reasonable chance that could happen here. Um, value Line thinks earnings are going to grow 17 percent over the next uh, five years. And, um, you know, I don't need that. I've got a 25% cash-on-cash return in terms of the EBITDA over the enterprise value. So if they're right, 
that gets me up into the 40% sort of total return. Excuse me. And I just don't need that much to buy the stock. Um, the stock, according to Value Line, is around 9 This is last Monday's price, and it's, Friday, it's Saturday. So I don't know what the price is today. But, um, you know, it's likely different. And the stock, it's been pretty volatile. You know, I don't know what, if I had seen this, I... I don't think I talked about this on the show, but you know, the stock got down to a buck thirty in oh nine, late oh eight, and it's at nine, so you sort of missed it from there. But on the other hand, at that point, this thing for some reason might have looked pretty scary, but you know, it, it doesn't look like they you know they didn't lose money. And uh you know, they're small, but uh and, and they don't have much debt and in fact they have um you know, cash that more than offsets the debt. So, you know, that's that's enough said on this CULP, page 1143. It's really a, a pretty interesting valuation, and they're caught up in a little cycle that looks like it could go on for a while in what should be a stable, pretty stable end market uh, for betting, you know, even if it's just a replacement market. So, CULP. Okay, <clears throat> uh, next up. And this one, you know, I, actually, I don't want to say what my favorite is in advance. I always wait till the end of the show, but, you know, and I'm not going to say tonight, but this could be it, ball. Just say it could be. Uh, ticker BLL, page 1170 in this week's value line. Um, what am I attracted to? Well, again, it's a, it's a discount P.E., and yet when I take a look at, uh, a quick look down at return on capital, it's a very stable number in the low teens, and it looks like it may be slightly rising. So below average valuation, above average return on capital, you know, that's a quick eyeball that gets me interested. So what do they do? Ball Corp um, manufactures metal and plastic packaging. And um, that's 90% of their sales. They don't do the glass ball jars that you may be familiar with. In fact, th this uh, write-up makes the point to say they sold that um, 15 years ago. So, you know, somebody else owns that. Um, so that's 90% of their sales. So what else do you need to know? They're a big beverage and food packaging company. Uh, they're probably a low-cost producer, or it's an oligopoly where there's a handful of big producers that can bid on the big jobs. They earn a low-teens margin on $7 billion in sales. So, you know, obviously there's giant barriers to entry. You can't just come in and win uh, some of these big accounts. You, you have... Uh, a lot of equipment and such to buy. In fact, their investment in total capital here is, um, let's see, well, it looks like about $4 billion in book value, and market value is $5 billion. So the equipment it would take to get in this business, you know, it's hard to compete. And undoubtedly, that's why the margin stays sort of here. Returns on capital are right where they, the margins are, so you got a one-to-one -one turnover, sort of uh, asset sales to assets uh, or sales to capital. Um, again, the low teens. 
They lever it just a little bit. They've got a very consistent history of returns on equity in the, you know, it gets into the low 30s, but consistently in the mid-20s. Very impressive record, not only of the absolute level, but of the stability of it. Uh, the market never gives them much of a multiple for some reason, you know, and it's got to be related to uh, always the perception, perhaps, that they'll, they, you know, that they're apt to be a slow grower. But yet, um, you know, when you look at history, they're, they're actually a pretty good grower because my guess is that not only do you have the, you have growth in population driving packaging, but then you have the number of packages per po population. And even in the advanced economies, like our own or Western Europe, the number of packages per capita continue to grow uh, each year. And then you've got these giant emerging economies of China and India where um, the packages per person per year are growing at multiples of ours. And so it's a pretty safe bet that packaging is going to be growing at above the rates of world growth. Uh, these guys are, um, I think I saw here that they were, I guess I'm not seeing it here now, but you know, my guess is a, an important part of their business is international. And so you get a piece of that, but just the backdrop of the need for packaging. And then they're apt to get, I think, you know, once they've got the cost structure really honed where they're hard to, you know, outbid, um, then they probably have a little bit of pricing flexibility simply because the cost of the package is a small component of the cost of the whole uh, product, or at least it's a, a minority. I mean, obviously, in some cases, it could be a big piece. But I like that element of it. And so it's a, you know, it's a high-return company um, the, with, a, with a you know, modest valuation. The enterprise value to EBITDA here is eight times. So again, I'll look at the inverse as a cash-on-cash cash return. That's about 12.5%. And that's pretty good terms of, uh, you know, an annuity, uh, certainly beats the heck out of most bonds right now. And then I'm going to get some growth on top of that. Value line says my five-year growth rate in earnings is 10%. I can add it to my cash-on-cash cash return as the component of my total return that's an increase in value every year, assuming a stable multiple. And so I'm into the low 20s, and I like that. Uh, on ball, uh, you know, there's... Uh, a bunch of detail here you could read, but basically things are looking like they might be getting a little better. And, uh, you know, I guess they divested their worst segment, which was a plastic segment. You know, maybe there's a lot of overcapacity in plastics. I don't know. But um, uh, this thing looks pretty interesting and, um, yeah, pretty attractively priced ball, ticker BLL. And finally... For me this week, Sunoco Products, ticker SON, page 1182. Um, you know, again, the valuation gets me on this one. It's uh, 14 times earnings, a 9% discount to the market PE, a 6 times multiple on uh, enterprise value to EBITDA, which would be a 16.6% cash-on-cash return. And what do they do? Again, they're in the packaging business. And uh, we're just getting into that period where, as I said earlier, um, we're just people are just starting to appreciate that we're 
going to be moving our way into a recovery. And so um, the economies of scale for packaging guys, you're just going to start to move into the period where your incremental margin on that incremental dollar of sales is high because, you know, I mean, these guys didn't lose money and uh, Ball didn't lose money. So, you know, you got a you know, you got you got a little bit of a compression in the margin, and that's not going to expand out as we move forward. Uh, ball in plastic and steel packaging. Sunoco here is in paper-based tubes and cores, and uh, it has very similar characteristics to Ball that I like, which is a long history of good returns on capital in the low teens. Again, very stable. No, no money losing years here, anything like that. And then uh, a little bit of leverage, you get into the upper teens, returns on equity. Um, again, going back 10 years, very stable numbers. Operating margin, same way, super stable here, almost as if, you know, they get to decide what it is each year. And, you know, there could be a little bit of that going on. Um, stable share count, not buybacks, which I would prefer, but at least it's not increases. And unlike uh, the other two companies I've talked about tonight, these guys actually do pay uh, a yield, a dividend, 3.4%. So, again, that beats treasuries. Um, not that this is less risky than the government, but I will say that they've never had a, well, they did have a one down year. But um, they've never lost money on the page. And, um, you know, they got a pretty stable history here going, going way back. Um, and so I think the risks, you know, them not paying this dividend is pretty low. The dividend has never been cut going back 20 years on the page, so 3.4%. And then, um, you know, Value Line says they're going to grow earnings 8%, so for me as a potential buyer of the whole company, the enterprise, I'm going to have a 16% cash-on-cash return, um, you know, my EBITDA divided by the enterprise value that I would pay, and then I'm going to get 8% earnings growth. So that's, low, again, low 20s. And I like that. Sunoco Products, ticker S-O-N. So uh, that's all I have this week. And, uh, again, I mixed up the format a little bit this week. But I'd, I'd like to get to, uh, to a part of the show that um, I call It Would Help My Portfolio If... Um, for further information about, you know, the stocks we talk about on the show, visit the website, www.thevalueguys.com, and there's links into all the past shows. Okay, let's move to the rant portion of our show uh, called It Would Help My Portfolio If. Although this week I'm going to have a guest rant by Mr. Stephen Keel, who recently started uh, a fund called the Hayek Fund, and uh, he wrote in to me, he has a fund based on free market principles. And I thought, you know, come on the show, do a guest rant. And I think uh, Mr. Keel's rant is about what the uh, worst political idea has been um, in the last, I think, 100 years. So I'll listen in uh, to Mr. Stephen Keel. Hey, Val, thanks again for letting me on. Uh, for the listeners, my name is Steve Keel. Uh, that's my real name, by the way. 
and I'm a portfolio manager out in the Washington, D.C. area. My firm recently launched a new fund uh, called the Hayek Fund that's devoted to free market principles. I think it might be the first fund of its kind. Uh, so I appreciate uh, uh, appreciate Val letting me on here to give a little guest rant, uh, especially being in Washington. I've got a lot of things to be angry about seeing it firsthand here. Uh, and before I answer the question, I did come prepared, too. I have an adult beverage in my hand. Uh, a little clink of the glass. So... I don't. I, I had to use. I do not actually have two adult beverages. I just had to use another glass to give the clink. So I don't want to give the wrong impression here. Uh, but anyway, you know, I think the most destructive political idea of the last few years is is this. It's Keynesian economics, and it's this belief in Keynesian economics uh, by the senior leaders in Washington, by you know senior leaders in the Fed, and things like that. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds. Uh, with economic theory, but, you know, I'm not an economist. I, hopefully you're not either. Uh, you know, Val's not. Then again, you know, think of some of the economists out there. I mean, Paul Krugman won a Nobel Prize for it. And, you know, I, I gotta believe that our common sense approach is probably uh, a better approach than anything coming out of Paul Krugman's uh, mouth or whatever he's writing down there. I'm not reading his column very, very, uh, regularly anyway. Um, so I don't think uh, we should feel bad about that. But, you know, the idea behind the Keynesian economics is that basically in times of uh, the bottom of the business cycle when uh, private industry pulls back, that the government needs to get involved. So, you know, logically, government, more government spending, more government regulation, um, things like government loan guarantees, uh, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, to be honest with you, uh, here in this environment, I think it's been extremely destructive in the last few years for a variety of reasons. And we've got this just massive amount of uncertainty. You've got all these changes. Uh, you're basically creating this, I mean, it's nanny state on steroids uh, when you're talking about the a lot of the most recent bills that have come across here. But you also have the government getting involved in, you know, these loan guarantees and and basically allocation of capital uh, decisions that uh, are becoming more politicized, and that's not a good thing. The government is a monopoly, and uh, the whole purpose of monopolies, you know, is, is, uh, you know, they're just not able to deal. They don't have to deal with the competition, and so because of that, they don't have to be, effective or efficient uh, there's no consequence and so it's it's just a very very destructive um, thing for the government to get involved in these businesses I mean not I'm not just talking about the car bailouts and, and stuff like that but uh, just the loan guarantees I mean and plus getting into the student loan market and all this kind of intervention uh, but going back to Keynes you know his his idea uh, just to break it down fairly simple, that um, came from him was it was something called the multiplier effect, and the idea behind that was for every dollar that was spent by the government, it was uh, you know like an investment. So you would get a dollar and fifteen cents, or dollar and forty cents, dollar and twenty cents. You'd get some sort of return on the dollar that the government invests in the economy. So because of increased employment or or whatever. Um, GDP would grow by let's you know whatever dollar twenty for every dollar spent, and you know to be honest with you, I, I just don't buy that argument. I think it's bunk. Um, I don't know if it was ever true, even when Keynes 
suggested it back in the 30s or you know or 40s and back then where you know you had also massive government intervention but it especially i mean maybe let's say it even did work back then i i'm not willing to grant that but let's just for the sake of argument say it did it's just not going to work today i mean you don't have these infrastructure projects that potentially could uh, be a positive thing for the country that the country you know actually needs but instead they're spending this money on things like transfer payments and you know sending it to the states for to reimburse for medicare um or medicaid expenses uh you're you're spending it on uh you know loan guarantees and stuff like that and uh some sort of reimbursements to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and AIG and all this garbage and you know that's the kind of stuff that um <coughs> excuse me you you're just not you're not actually putting it into the hands of uh someone that's going to you know create a productive use out of it not only that but you're taking it out of the pockets of of the the actual most productive parts of society so you're taking a dollar out of a small business owner or a, a successful individual you're taking it out of their pocket and then you're you're by by definition reallocating it to a part of society that's not as productive as who you're taking it from in the hopes of that they will become more productive but uh you know they find it hard to believe that it actually will happen like that and not only that but you're talking about uh 53% of people paying federal taxes and uh you know they're going to basically subsidize the 47% of people um who don't pay federal taxes and so you know talk about fairness issues and whether the rich pay you know don't pay enough taxes or, or something like that uh well how about this <laughs> you know half of us are subsidizing the other half i mean that's a a huge fairness issue right now you're basically punishing the most creative and the hardest working uh parts of society by uh taking money out of their pocket and reallocating it in a in a way that's not even not even productive uh and you know not only that but and you take a dollar out of my pocket for example you're actually you're taking a dollar you're spending or the government is spending a dollar 40 a dollar 50 something like that they're borrowing all the all of this extra money from you know other countries whether it be the chinese or other countries and you're weakening our our national security in that sense but you're also borrowing it from future generations so i mean i don't have kids but you're basically the government is basically slipping their hand in you know fast forward 30 years in the pockets of of uh you know my neighbor's kid for example your kid i don't know um you know i mean if i had a kid i'd even be more upset about it than i am now I'm pretty fired up as is so it's it's just you know perfect you can't run a you can't run a household like that you can't run a corporation like that uh I don't think you can run government like that either um and not only that but you're taking this money out of the uh, productive parts of society and you're incentivizing the most productive parts of society the most creative parts of society you're incentivizing them to not work quite as hard you know the more that you you take out of their pockets uh the less that they really want to work. So it's like telling someone like Steve Jobs, uh you know what, just uh, don't worry about that iPad idea. You know, we don't need that right now because uh you know, we don't there's that marginal tax rate that that is going to be added on top of you. It's just not going to make it worth your while uh you know to to just put in that extra 5 hours of work a week. And that's not the kind of incentive that you want to be putting on 
the most productive people in society. So, you know, forget about the fact uh, that you have all the government waste and bureaucracy, that for that dollar that's being taken out of my pocket uh, and being transferred to, I don't know, the long-term, you know, unemployed or uh, the welfare, you know, recipient or something like that, I guess it would be a, the earned income tax credit uh, recipient at this point. Uh, and, you know, these loan guarantees to maybe some of these these green companies that aren't able to get a loan in the private world. Well, you're taking the money out of my pocket and you're transferring it to these people, uh, but by the time it gets to them, it's probably only only about 75 cents or so because the government and their bureaucracy and those transaction costs involved with that are, you know, and the waste is probably 25 cents on the dollar. So to get to that multiplier effect, you not only have to, you know, make up for all that 25 cents that's being being wasted in transaction costs, but then you also have to, you know, somehow get a return on that. And I'm just not buying it. I don't think it, I don't think it works that way. Um, so anyway, that's the approach for, uh, for the Keynesian approach. I think it's been the most destructive political idea the last few years here. And I'm not even certain that that was you know, fully Keynes' ideas uh, uh, back in the day. I mean, I think that the way that it's been, uh, you know, bastardized by some of the leaders here in, in government um, to somehow justify that just spending spending by itself is is uh, going to be worthwhile. I don't, I don't think that's the way Keynes intended it either. But let me tell you about the alternative. And, and the alternative is uh, Frederick Hayek. And there's a reason why we named our free market uh fund after him it's because he was the basically he was the opponent of of Keynes he was the you know debating opponent he was the uh the idea um the ideas that were basically the opposite of what the ideas that Keynes came across and they had this uh, some sort of rivalry throughout their lives uh earlier in the 20th century and uh Hayek's idea is that you know, creative destruction and, and, uh, the, the individual is going to make the better decision. So, you know, smaller government, less spending by government, business cycles are actually good. And, you know, I happen to believe this as well because companies, uh, they get fat and happy in the good times. And, uh, in order to stay competitive, you know, you, when the, they need that business cycle to go down to increase their efficiency to, uh, kind of come up with new products to to get more lean. And uh, if not for that down point in the business cycle, they're not going to come out stronger. And that's very important. You can't have government kind of intervening in that sense and 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 uh, trying to to soften the business cycle uh without you know, when the when the government does that and they've tried to do this the last few years, well well now we have very slow growth coming out of it. And uh the business cycle a lot of positives come out of that that low point. Um, Hayek Hayek believed that, and you know, most importantly, I think he believed that the economic liberty uh, leads to social and individual liberty. That's a very important concept. Uh, a lot of people are very upset about, uh, you know, for example, banker pay and all that stuff, uh, and they want the government to come in and do something about it. Well, you know, when the government does something about that, then, you know, they don't just stop there. They're also going to get involved in, in your personal life, too, and, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're going to get taxes on, on sugar and, and all these moral things, uh, or what the government seem, seems to think is moral. So, 
economic liberty, without the economic liberty, we're not going to have so, uh, social or personal liberty. And uh, that's what Hayek believed. Uh, so anyway, uh, I hope that, uh, you know, this was interesting for you. It was you know, a fun little rant for me. I had a good time and uh, appreciate uh, Val for letting me come on here. Let me give a little clink of the glass again here. All right, a little sip. Yeah, all right. Uh, all right, thanks again, and Val, and uh, looking forward to uh, the stock ideas coming up here uh, in the rest of the show. Uh, yeah. Uh, hey, Stephen, I, I actually did the, the stocks at the beginning of the show, so apologize about that. Anyway, thanks a lot for that. A very uh, thought-provoking. I share a lot of those same sentiments, you know, although I don't try to name anybody by name exactly, but, you know, for me as the percentage of GDP that's controlled by the government rises, you're harming the return on that capital, which then, re, you know, retards the growth rate, uh, which then, as you go out into the next generation, harms the wealth per capita of our children and their children. And that'll manifest itself in terms of smaller homes, fewer cars, fewer vacations, less health care, all the things that we are the opposite of what we would would wish for. So in that sense, I think, Stephen, that uh, you're on to something with that. So thanks very much for being on our show, and thanks for listening in, everybody. Um, please check out um, all of our uh, past shows, bios, photographs at our website, www.thevalueguys.com, and um, we'll look forward to seeing you again, hopefully, next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.